Well, I'm Ray Armentrout, and I'm going to introduce Christian Wyman from this piece of paper. Um, Christian Wyman, otherwise known as Chris Wyman, is the author of three books of poetry, The Long Home, Hard Nights, and most recently, from Farrar Strauss, Every Riven Thing. The latter was chosen by critic Dan Chasen as one of the best books of 2010. Chris is also the author of a book of essays called Ambition and Survival, Becoming a Poet, a subject which is, I imagine, of some interest to at least some of you. (laughs) Wyman's poems and essays have appeared in such magazines as Harper's, The Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, and The New York Review of Books. And he is notably the current editor of the venerable Poetry Magazine, a journal which in its early days, and it goes back to what, uh, 1910 or 1912, was the first to publish T.S. Eliot. The magazine has went through many phases. We were just talking about this, had many different editors, had high points and low points. But in, in recent years before Chris took over, it had grown considerably tamer and uh, kind of more dull. And, and people that I knew really didn't pay attention to it anymore. But Chris Christian has worked to make it adventurous and relevant and contentious again, and it is that. It publishes not only poetry, but also uh, reviews and very passionate letters to the editor complaining about the reviews, not not necessarily by the people who were reviewed, but by people who like or dislike, and sometimes even complaining about the poems that were published. So it is, and it, it comes out how often? Like every couple months or something? Every month. every month. So it's a constant discussion about poetry. You know, really, if you, if you um, subscribe to it, you're like part of a discussion. But, uh, anyway, back to Chris as a writer. The poems in Every Riven Thing, and that's, uh, I admit, the book that I have read, the third book, so I'm just <laughs> going to talk about that. The poems in Every Riven Thing display a kind of tough-minded lyricism. They are strung tight sonically and intellectually. They take on the old intractable questions about the nature and possibility of God and the meaning of suffering. Wyman doesn't so much answer those questions as live inside them and make the conundrum sing. There is a fierce integrity to him and to his work. So from Chicago, please welcome Christian Wyman. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Uh, Thank you, Amy, for that story. It's a tough act to follow. These poems, these poems, these poems, she said, are poems with no love in them. These are the poems of a man who would leave his wife and child because they made noise in his study, she said. These are the poems of a man who would murder his mother to claim the inheritance. These are the poems of a man like Plato, she said meaning something I did not comprehend, but which nevertheless offended me. 
<laughs> These are the poems of a man who would rather sleep with himself than with women, she said. <clears throat> These are the poems of a man with eyes like a draw knife, hands like a pickpocket's hands, woven of water and logic and hunger with no strand of love in them. These poems are as heartless as birdsong, as unmeant as elm leaves, which if they love, love only the wide blue sky and the air and the idea of elm leaves. Self-love is an ending, she said, not a beginning. Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or the singing. These poems, she said. You are, I said, beautiful. <laughs> that is not love, she said rightly. So I didn't write that poem, unfortunately. Um, a wonderful poet named Robert Bringhurst, a Canadian poet, wrote it. Uh, it's sort of anomalous in his work, actually. Bringhurst is famous as a typographer, and not really as a poet, but he is a very good poet. I begin with it for a couple of reasons. First of all, to encourage you, if, if you're not doing it already, to memorize poems. Uh, it's a great thing to have in your head as a sort of baseline language. We, we live with so much can't, so much shit in our, in our uh, environments all the time, our linguistic environments, and it's, it's great to have something there that anchors you to reality and, and to a, a real emotional life. The other reason is, is uh, you know, I've, I've carried that poem in my head for years because I just love what it says. I love the tension that it articulates between life and art, and it's a tension that I have lived with and suffered from, uh, stupidly suffered from at times. Uh, for years, and uh, and I love it, and I love that it gives the woman the, the last word. <laughs> People sometimes think, they often think that faith or belief is a you know, you believe in something. You have faith in something. Um, I think it's often more appropriate to think of belief or faith as not having an object. That you believe towards something, you have faith towards something. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, has a great quote where he said, um, if you are searching for God, then you have already found God. Which is a good way to think of it. This poem is called When the Times Toxins. When the times toxins have seeped into every cell, and like a salted plot from which all rain, all green are gone, I and life are leached of meaning. Somehow a seed of belief sprouts the instant I acknowledge it. Little weedy, hardy, would-be greenness tugged upward by light while deep within, roots like talons are taking hold again of this our only earth. And this little poem is called Given a God More Playful. Given a God more playful, more safeful, 
less prone to unreachable peaks and silence at the heart of stone. I might have plundered thunder from a tick's back. I might have swigged existence from a tulip's bell and given all hell to a god who, given time, you goddamn well what to do with it, make and proliferate and vanish when you are through with it. As Ray said, I edit Poetry Magazine. I've edited it for um, eight years now. And we get about 100,000 submissions a year from all over the world. Uh, so we have a constant flow of, of poems. Uh, people think that we're sometimes only interested in famous poets like Ray, but uh, it's not true. We're uh, actually especially interested in younger poets. Uh, we love to catch them when they're really young. Um, and I wanted to just share a couple of poems with you by uh, uh, poets who are in their early 20s. This poem is called Conjugation. Both these titles, both the titles of these poems work very well. Uh, conjugation meaning uh, uh, the way you conjugate a verb grammatically, but also conjugation of, of, uh, of uh, marriage, the way two, thing, two people coming together, two things coming together. This early, the garden's bare, but people pay to walk it. At pot plots of budless brush, stop, as if remembering, and stoop to mouth the names, Aracaria, Aracana, monkey puzzle tree, something Japanese, each particular ridiculous to be. Each particular ridiculous to be. This one's called Prayer's End. Again, that title, Prayer's End, meaning the end of something, when something stops, and also meaning the aim of something. Nature remains faithful by natural light only, immeasurable, invisible in the wind, visible when blades and branches bend, the wind speaks fluent rain. Despite it, the rain falls straight. And beyond it, abandoned barns defend abandoned men. That's a great ear. This is somebody you're going to hear from, I guarantee it. And beyond it, abandoned barns defend abandoned men. Wonderful. I grew up in West Texas in a little bitty town in West Texas called Snyder. And uh, there was no poetry in Snyder. Uh, there were no books in my house. And, and, uh, and so I grew up in a really an utterly bookless environment. Um, and it's taken me a long time to see what exactly the poetry was in that place. Uh, this poem fits at that, at what kind of poetry that I grew up with. The only thing you need to know about it, it's very easy to follow, the only thing you need to know is a sapper is uh, uh, someone who, in the military, goes out and defuses a bomb. <clears throat> it's called Five Houses Down. I loved his ten demented chickens and the hell-eyed dog, the mailbox shaped like a huge green gun. 
I love the eyesore opulence of his five partial cars, the wonder-cluttered porch with its oil-spill plumage, tools called in oil, the dark clockwork of disassembled engines, christened sweet baby and benedicted old bitch. And down the steps into the yard the explosion of mismatched parts and black scraps amid which, like a bad sapper cloaked in luck, he would look up stunned, patting the gut that slopped out of his undershirt and saying, Son, you looking to make some scratch? All afternoon we'd pile the flatbed high with stacks of Exxon floor mats mysteriously stenciled with his name. Rain-rotted sheetrock or miles of misfitted pipes, coil after coil of rusted fence wire that stained for days every crease of me, rollicking it all to the dump where, while he called every ragman and ravened junk dog by name, he cat-picked the avalanche of trash and fished some always fixable thing up from the depths. His endless, aimless work was not work, my father said. His bark-like earthquake curses were not curses, for he could goddamn a slipped wrench and shit-fuck a stuck latch. But one bad word from me made his whole being twang like a nail misstruck. Ain't no call for that, son. No call at all. Slip not. What not? Not from which no man escapes, prestoed back to plain old rope, whip snake, black snake, deep in the worm dirt, worms like the clutch of mud. I wanted to live forever, five houses down in the womanless rooms a woman sometimes seemed to move through, leaving him twisting a hand-stitched dish towel or idly wiping the volcanic dust. It was heaven to me. Beans and weenies from paper plates, black-fingered tinkerings on the back stoop as the sun set, on an upturned fruit crate, a little jam jar of rye like ancient light, from which, once, I took a single secret sip, my eyes tearing, and my throat on fire. I have a book coming out next year of the uh, versions of the Russian poet Osip Mandelstam, and I sort of fell into the project haphazardly. My wife was reading it, and we were having conversations, and I just met the poet Ilya Kaminsky here in San Diego, and and uh, he and I got into conversations about Mandelstam, and uh, at any rate, I, I began translating Mandelstam. It's a long story. Um, it took me over. It took me over for um, a number of months, just consumed me in, a, in, a, in the most wonderful sort of way. Uh, and if any of you know Ilya, I had Ilya the strong wind of his enthusiasm behind me. He's, he's, he's a wonderful poet and uh, a wonderful en enthusiast of poetry. Uh, Mandelstam was a modernist poet. He, he um, uh, uh, I forget the year he died. Uh, he was 37 years old. Uh, he died in 1938, that's when it was. Um, he he, he um, uh, 
supported the Russian Revolution, but like all of the artists, so many of the artists and intellectuals of the time, uh, was consumed by it, uh, was, was sort of destroyed by Stalin. Um, he was last seen picking through trash at a transit camp. Uh, that's all, that's all anybody knows of him. There's a great bo book of the last years of his life by Nadezhda Mandelstam called Hope Against Hope, his wife. And, uh, it's a, it's a fantastic book in its own right, beautifully written and exciting and, and despairing, uh, and hopeful, but very, very beautiful. Uh, Mandelstam and his wife were always returning to Moscow for uh, usually translation work, trying to find money, to borrow money or, or uh, one thing or another, and, and being forced to flee again. For years they did this. Uh, and this first poem memorializes one of those nights. I should say, Mandelstam has, uh, and the previous translators will, will say this in their introductions, he's, he's uh, not been translated before for his music. Mandelstam in Russian, the closest analogy is, is a poet like, like Gerard Manley Hopkins or Hart Crane. It's somebody for whom the sound is is full front. I mean, it's it's very much in your face. Sort of, uh, uh, it's the primary thing going on, um, and that is, of course, is a very hard thing to, to translate. If you listen to the Russian, the downbeats are so heavy. It's just, I mean, they're just merciless. And every poem is rhymed and metered except for one. Um, and that's a tough thing to translate. Obviously, I couldn't do it either. Uh, but what I tried to do was to give, to make poems that sing in English with something of a sound that Mandelstam might have had. This poem is called Night Piece. It's from 1931. Come, love, let us sit together in the cramped kitchen, breathing kerosene. There's fuel enough to forget the weather. The knife is ours and the bread is clean. Come, love, let us play the game of what to take and when to run, of come with me and come what may, and holding hands to hold off the sun. An amazing thing about Mandelstam is he had this incredible variety of tones. Even right up until the end of his life, when he knew he was about to die, he would write these flagrantly funny pieces, and crazy, sort of... Uh, dream pieces, but they're funny, too. This one's called Herzlverse. Once upon a time there lived a Jew, a musical Jew, I tell you, named Alexander Herzlwitz. Sweet as sherbet, his Schubert. A jewel, I tell you, a musical jewel, dawn to dusk, day after day, the same damn jewel in the same damn way. What is this, Salamander Slivovitz, Insanity's Sonata? And what are you, a holy fool? Scherzovitz, enough of it. Let the dulce de leche maiden swoon Schubert through her skin. Let the children slay Allegro, this swiftness and darkness and star-sparkled snow. We're not afraid to die, you and I, to flutter down like a dove, a musical dove, to hang on a black hook like a coat and glove, a worn one-armed coat and a tattered three-fingered glove. Oh, maestro, Alexander Herzovitz, whose hands and heart are blown to bits. 
What in you pins you there, my lonely mister, heaven's busker, playing your sad, your same, your only air? And this is one of his most famous poems uh, called Black Candle, very short. There's actually a very good translation of this poem in the W.S. Merwin Clarence Brown version, which is the version that most people know. Uh, it, it, it works very well with, without rhyme. Your girlish shoulders are for blushing, for blushing under whips and in dawn's raw ice to shine. Your childlike hands are for pushing, for pushing flat irons and feed sacks and knotting twine. Your feet, infant tender, are for tiptoeing, tiptoeing through shattered glass in the blood-tracked clay. And I, I am for you, a black candle burning, like a black candle I am burning and dare not pray. Samantha was Jewish. He converted to Catholicism in his 20s, and then he ended up uh, uh, what I would call a sort of priest of pure being. It's very hard to tell what he believed, except being. This is the last poem that he wrote. Keep in mind he knew he was going to die, and he writes this. And I was alive in the blizzard of the blossoming pear. Myself I stood in the storm of the bird cherry tree. It was all leaf, life, and star shower, unerring, self-shattering power, and it was all aimed at me. What is this dire delight, flowering, fleeing, always earth? What is being? What is truth? Blossoms rupture and rapture the air, all hover and hammer, time intensified and time intolerable, sweetness raveling rot. It is now. It is not. And I want to end with this poem for my wife. Short little poem for my wife. You can you can think of it as a sort of bookend to that poem that I began with, these poems. Because I would not leave my wife and child because they made noise in my study. Although there was a time when I might have. For D. Groans going all the way up a young tree, half cracked and caught in the crook of another. Pause. All around the hill-ringed, heavened pond, leaves shush themselves like an audience. A cellular stillness, as of some huge attention bearing down. May I hold your hand? A clutch of mayflies, banqueting on oblivion, writhes above the water like visible light. Thank you very much. So I don't know if anyone has questions. You guys have been sitting for a while. I don't know. If
yeah. What is poetry? <laughs> what, the question is, what is poetry? Uh, well, um, gosh, that's good. That's good. That's wonderful. Um, you know, I don't. I. I. Uh, any definition that I give you, there's going to be something that falls outside of it. There. Uh, there's no way to define it. There. There are pro. There's prose that I think is poetry. There's. There's. Uh, I've. I've seen visual things that are poems. I. It, you know, I've seen words arranged concretely that are poems. It, anything that you, that you. The minute you decide what poetry is, somebody does something else and makes you rethink it. So I. I think it's. Uh, you know, you can say. At its essence, it's some kind of compression of language that causes you, causes both the language and your emotional life to be enlarged. You know, the, the enlargement of reality is what R.P. Blackmer once said. Uh, so maybe that's a good enough definition. But, but like I said, the minute you define it, somebody does something else. Yeah, you know, I, I um, the question was what you know. I wasn't raised in an environment where there was where there was poetry, and so what brought me to it? Certainly, the church. Uh, I was raised in a very religious uh, family, and and uh, and so the stories that I heard were poetry. The the we used the King James Bible and had to memorize verses from the Bible. That was poetry and very good poetry, I mean, high quality stuff. Even though nobody thought of it as poetry. Um, so I certainly had some interest in, in making things when I was young and making things that sounded like the hymns. Um, but then in college I read particularly, it was particularly Yeats and Eliot that I read them and, and uh, it was like having my head opened up. And I didn't understand it, but I knew that I just loved the sound. I just wanted to make something that sounded that good, which it has not worked out. <laughs> Yeah. So when you write your poetry, do you usually write it and uh, that's it, or do you go back to it later? Or what's your process for writing poetry? Yeah, the question is, what you know, do I usually write it and then leave it, or do I uh, write it and go back to it later? It, it the, the answer is both. Uh, the best poem, my favorite poems of mine, have come very easily, um, and I've written them, uh, and they're just done. Uh, sometimes with very complicated formal structures, and they can be done in in an hour. It's much easier than being a prose writer. If you're looking for a career choice, man, I mean, forget forget the money. That sucks. But but uh, um, but then I've had poems that have taken years, literally, literally eight to ten years, to short poems to to emerge. Part of it would be there, and then it would take years and years and years to figure out what the poem was. So it's it's both. Yeah. I appreciated what you said about memorizing verse, um, and I wonder if you could talk more about that process. Do you? How, how does a poem make a short list? <laughs> well, you know, I used to have, I used to have time, so that was that was great. But now I have two babies, and I, I don't have much time. But, um, I used to memorize everything that I loved. Uh, I, I at one point I could quote I mean huge passages of the prayer. I guess I probably still could, but. I would make lots of mistakes, but you know I loved Wordsworth. I was crazy about Wordsworth, and I memorized huge swaths of Wordsworth uh, just because I just was desperate to have it in my head. Um, 
So you know, I it, I didn't do so many contemporary things. It was it was mostly mostly poems from the past. But it, it used to be just anything that I loved. I would just want to have it. Yeah. I love music. Yeah, but I don't see any connection. Uh, I don't listen to it and then and then write or listen to it while I write. I love it. I think for the. Uh, formal possibilities that it offers that I don't have to respond to or something like that. You know, I feel like in poetry, I'm, you're always trying to, you're always uh, parasitical in some way. You're always you know, saying, what can I get from this? Or what am I learning? What am I hearing? With music, I, I'm completely untrained. I don't understand what I'm listening to, but I feel the form, the form of it very much in some musicians, Stravinsky especially. And, uh, uh, but I don't have to respond to it. And it's a great relief. So it inspires me in that way. Dance used to be the same way. I used to love to go to dance and for that reason, because I could just see these forms playing out on stage that uh, were completely new to me and alien to me. And, uh, and, and, and they just seemed so fresh and, and they weren't burdened with all of, that I know about poetry. Yeah. Yeah, the question is, uh, so Amy has a few um, hours every morning when she writes, and the, and the question is, do I? I, I don't anymore. I, I, my babies wake up at 6. I, well, that's not true. I, often, I do get up sometimes at 4.30 uh, if something's on my mind, even 3.30, and, uh, and work. Um, but that's what Mandelstam was written all. I, I, when that was going on, I got up at 3.30 every morning and, and worked. But, uh, but it was a pleasure, really. And I was just wide awake, and I was I was I was happy to have it. But no, I don't. I used to used to spend hours uh, working, but no, it doesn't work for me that way anymore. If I try to do it, if I try to write poetry and poetry's not there, forget it. It nothing. It just it just drives me mad, and so I don't do it anymore. I read. I do have a prose book. I'm working on a prose book right now, and and that that's always available. There's always something I can do on that. But uh, with poems. They are a mystery to me. Uh, for years, I I hammered at them and hammered at them, and hammered at them, and, and and tried to force them, and and now I just don't. And if if they if I'm able to write them, then that's great. If I'm not able to write them anymore, well, the world has a lot of poems. <laughs> Maybe that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> I understand the question. But the the uh, you know the question is, do I have an end goal for my poems? Right? Is, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't, and I don't have a reader in mind, uh, and I don't have any sort of end goal in mind. The poetry seems to me uh, free, free of me in a weird way. It 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 seems to me unencumbered by most of what's in my personality. Um, that said, uh, uh, I've written a lot of prose recently uh, in the last few years. Uh, well, I'm sick. I've got, the, I've got this, this disease that, that uh, is permanent. I'll have it forever. And, and uh, um, it's really changed my life. And I wrote about it, and I've written about it in some of this. Some of this book is, is, a, is about that. And 
I get a lot of invitations now to go to divinity schools or to go to different places where you might talk to people who uh, have similar experiences and things like that. And so I find that my poems have a very different effect mm. in places like that and that we're having a very different conversation. And uh, it's not about poetry and it's not about, not usually, it's not about technique and not about, you know, it's not, that's not what it's about. And I have found that enormously gratifying to sit, to, to find the poems having this life, well, th that they might help people. It just seems incredible to me that that, that, that has been very gratifying. Yeah. Um, where do you say most of the inspiration comes from? Like, where does it stem from? Would you say from past poets? Inspiration? Um, you know, I found them, uh, that's tough. I would answer it in two ways. One is from reading. I mean, I find that if I stop reading, then my writing dries up. Uh, uh, I really love to read, and, and I really love poetry. And I've gone through long periods when I didn't love it. Um, and the other is is a life experience. Uh, I've had uh, huge things in my life have happened, and and it has translated into poems. Um, not not directly, but I would say that that's for me. That's been I would have I would have despised that notion at one time in my life, but but I find that now that it's definitely true. Right. Did you have a question? Well, I was just going, I mean, I guess it would be better if everyone asked their questions about writing poetry first, but I was going to ask, I thought that the um, students might be interested in hearing you talk about editing a bit, and you talked about the volume you get as in submissions. So then what happens? Do you have interns who look at it for, mm -hmm. do you and Dawn have interns, and how do you, you couldn't possibly read all that. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the editing process, especially for people who might hope to publish somewhere some someday mm -hmm. with that one. So the question is, how, you know, the process of editing Poetry Magazine, um, well, it all, uh, you know, we get 100,000 submissions, it sounds like a, a terrible amount, but, and it is, it's a lot, but the truth <laughs> is, most of it is uh, from wackos, I mean, a lot of it's from, I'm, I mean, seriously, it'll have, it'll have like pictures of, I mean, I've gotten naked pictures, I've gotten things scrawled in lipstick, I've gotten, you know, I mean, I mean, serious, serious, seriously weird things. I don't, um, so that stuff gets weeded out uh, by the intern. And then it all goes to, Chris, it all goes to Christina Pugh, who's a professor at UIC and uh, a brilliant uh, scholar and poet. And, and she has been there, she's been reading for me now for six years, and she's just fantastic. And she, she has this ability to go very fast, very quickly through things, and and uh, and she puts notes on what needs to go further. And they're, they're very good notes, just little bitty notes. And then it all either goes to Don, the senior editor, or to me, and and um, uh, just sort of depending where we are in the cycle. And and we read it and then discuss it among each other about what we're going to publish. And it gets winnowed down. Actually, most, Don does most of that. He, he winnows it down faster than I do. But I can spend, you know, it's, it's a lot, uh, it, there's a lot of material, but the, th the truth is, I can end up spending four hours on a single manuscript. If, if it's very difficult and, you know, if I need to think about it and, uh, and then I can move through hundreds of poems in four hours. If, if they're kind of this white noise kind of stuff. Uh, 
where the voice doesn't leap out at you, or you know, there's not much to think about. So, so it's 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 a different, you know, it's different uh, different reading experience all the time. Um, edit, the prose is actually probably more time consuming than the poetry. Uh, the prose we have to commission it all, and then it's a heavy editing process because it often comes in and, and it needs to really be edited. It's a lot of back and forth and. And uh, the magazine's half poetry and half prose. It's a special rate for students. I forget what it is, but it's cheap, dirt cheap. Um, so if you're a student, all you have to do is go online, type in that you're a student. It, it's a, it's a great, great way to keep up with contemporary poetry. And it just comes every month. Um, but yeah, like I said, the prose takes a long time. The letters take, letters take a long time because they have to be heavily edited. So that's the process. And the magazine gets... Assembled every month. We're always working on three issues at one time. Um, you never get a vacation because uh, it comes out every month. So, teach if you have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Are you fluent in Russian? Do you feel like fluency is a prerequisite for undertaking translation? Clearly not. No. I don't, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not fluent in Russian. I don't know. I don't know Russian. Um, uh, but you know none of the other translators, uh, except for a couple, uh, uh, know Russian either. Who have done Mandelstam? You know, Merwin doesn't know any Russian. James Green, which is uh, I think the best translation, uh, he he did. Um, no, they're versions. You know, they take great liberties, and they'll be they'll be clearly marked as versions. I'll have a note there and say, look, and I'll give give people examples of what it would look like to do it literally and. The way I had worked on those was I would get word by words from uh, Ilya, or because I was driving him crazy, I also hired a scholar at Northwestern to provide them for me, and she would provide also all these scholarly notes, which became very helpful for me. And she would go back and forth about, uh, you know, uh, she's Russian. She would go back and forth about idioms and words, and and what. But what I was particularly interested in are the textures of the poems, and nobody ever talks about it in, in everything I read. That, and and uh, I mean, the textures of the poems are so dense. And I mean, Mandelstam will sometimes have three three rhymes in one line. I mean, forget about rhyming at the end of the line, which he always does. But he'll have them in one line. So it, it, you would never guess that from the existing translations. And uh, so it just seemed to me that there was a way of listening in, because I had Ilya mostly. I couldn't have done it without Ilya. There's just no way. Because uh, he knows uh, Russian and English so knows them both perfectly, but they are versions, not translations. Anybody else? Thank you all.